Hey friends, M. Faring here. I'm so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope you are able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hey there, Em here. Welcome to the show today. Before we dive in, though, I want to take a moment to first share a trigger warning in relation to some of the content of today's episode. The subject of rape, abuse, and murder are all dealt with in Dinah's story, as found in Genesis chapter 34. Truthfully, there's absolutely no way to smooth over the very rough edges and horrific nature of this story, so how about we just get right to it? Genesis chapter 34 in the New Living Translation begins, One day Dinah, the daughter of Jacob and Leah, went to visit some of the young women who lived in the area, but when the local prince Shechem, son of Hamar, the Hevite, saw Dinah, he seized her and raped her. But then he fell in love with her, and he tried to win her affection with tender words. He said to his father, Hamar, Get me this young girl. I want to marry her. Soon Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but since his sons were out in the field herding his livestock, he said nothing until they returned. Hamar, Shechem's father, came to discuss the matter with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the field as soon as they heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious that their sister had been raped. Shechem had done a disgraceful thing against Jacob's family, something that should never have been done. Hamar tried to speak with Jacob and his sons. My son Shechem is truly in love with your daughter, he said. Please let him marry her. In fact, let's arrange other marriages too. You give us your daughters for our sons, and we will give you our daughters for your sons. And you may live among us. The land is open to you. Settle here and trade with us, and feel free to buy property in this area. Then Shechem himself spoke to Dinah's father and brothers. Please be kind to me and let me marry her, he begged. I will give you whatever you ask, no matter what dowry or gift you demand. I will gladly pay it. Just give me the girl as my wife. But since Shechem had defiled their sister Dinah, Jacob's sons responded deceitfully to Shechem and his father Hamar. They said to them, We couldn't possibly allow this, because you're not circumcised. It would be a disgrace for our sister to marry a man like you. But here is a solution. If every man among you be circumcised like we are, then we will give you our daughters, and we'll take your daughters for ourselves. We will live among you and become one people. But if you don't agree to be circumcised, we will take her and be on our way. Hamar and his son Shechem agreed to their proposal. Shechem wasted no time in acting on this request, for he wanted Jacob's daughter desperately. Shechem was a highly respected member of his family, and he went with his father, Hamar, to present this proposal to the leaders of the town gate. These men are our friends, they said. Let's invite them to live here among us and trade freely. Look, the land is large enough to hold them. We can take their daughters as wives and let them marry ours. But they will consider staying here and becoming one people with us only if... All our men are circumcised, just as they are. But if we do this, all their livestock and possessions will eventually become ours. Come, let's agree to their terms and let them settle here among us. So all the men in the town council agreed with Hamar and Shechem, and every male in the town was circumcised. But three days later, when their wounds were still sore, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, who were Dinah's full brothers, took their swords and entered the town without opposition. Then they slaughtered every male there, including Hamar and his son Shechem. They killed them with their swords, then took Dinah from Shechem's house and returned to their camp. Meanwhile, the rest of Jacob's sons arrived, finding the men slaughtered. They plundered the town because their sister had been defiled there. 
They seized all the flocks and herds and donkeys, everything they could lay their hands on, both inside the town and outside in the fields. They looted all their wealth and plundered their houses. They also took all their children and wives and led them away as captives. Afterward, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have ruined me. You have made me a stink among all the peoples of this land, among all the Canaanites and Perizzites. We are so few that they will join forces and crush us. I will be ruined and my entire household will be wiped out. But why should we let them treat our sister like a prostitute? They retorted angrily. Gosh, can I just come right out and say how much I hate what is happening here in chapter 34? Dinah, the one daughter of Jacob, is in this new land, Shechem. In Shechem, there's a guy named Shechem, and his dad is a man of status in the land. Shechem falls in love with Dinah, or at least her appearance, and he rapes her. After that, he wants to marry her, so he tries to get his dad to negotiate an arrangement with Jacob. What? Jacob and his sons are outraged, but Jacob sits by passively while his sons make a plan. They do it in much the same way Jacob always made plans, which is to say, in a sneaky and deceptive way. They plan to kill all the men of the land in retaliation for what Shechem did to Dinah. So as we read, they tell them that they all have to be circumcised, and then on the third day, after all the men in the town were circumcised, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's two full brothers in their blended family, entered the town, killed all the males, and rescued Dinah. The brothers then captured and plundered everything. Jacob disapproved, but mostly because he was afraid of retaliation. Whew, that is a lot. This is also probably a good place to mention that we never read that God endorsed these actions. The Bible is just describing what happened here. With that in mind, let's read from a helpful article I came across in my research from the Christianity.com website titled, What Do We Know About Jacob's Daughter Dinah? It reads, The story of Jacob's daughter Dinah is one of the darkest tales of the Old Testament, containing a terrible account of assault and revenge. Why is this story included in the first place? Much has been written about Jacob's 12 sons. Joseph even had his own Broadway musical. Jacob is also known as Israel, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. But the story of Jacob's daughter Dinah is more in line with a made-for-TV movie than an entertaining musical. Dinah's story is hard to read, hard to understand, and challenging to teach to a new generation. It's not ideal material for children's books or flannel graphs. It is a tragic story from beginning to end. What's important to understand about Dinah and the history of what happened here is that the Bible is a book of history. These weren't characters created to teach moral lessons. Jacob and his family were real people. They existed as sinners in a fallen world, living in ancient times, within a tribal and patriarchal culture. Marriage were arranged. Daughters had value because of their bride price. While some had loving fathers, many only valued their daughters for political, social, or material capital the family could gain upon their marriage. The biblical writer delivers Dinah's story with no sentimentality. Genesis 34 recounts what little we know of her, and it's a stark and unflinching report. It must be read and taught within the context of the times and culture, but even then, it's a painful episode in the history of the early life of Israel. So what do we know about Dinah from the Bible? Genesis 34 wastes no time describing the situation that developed around Dinah in Shechem. The ESV version says, in verses 1-5, through Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem the son of Hamar the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamar, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came.
It's important here to understand the structure of Jacob's family. Jacob had two wives, the sisters Rachel and Leah. Jacob had originally fallen in love with Rachel and arranged with her father Laban to work for her hand in marriage for seven years. When the time arrived, Laban tricked Jacob, probably with many veils, into marrying Rachel's older sister Leah, as it was his tribe's tradition that the older daughter married first. Laban offered Rachel to Jacob for another seven years of labor when the deceit was discovered. The Bible reports God, seeing that Leah was hated or unloved, opened her womb. In rapid succession, she gave birth to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Now Rachel was barren during this time, so envying her sister's children, she gave her handmaiden Bilhah to Jacob to bear children for her. Bilhah gave birth to Dan and Naphtali, whom Rachel claimed as her own. Leah experienced a period of barrenness, so she gave Jacob her servant Zilpha. Zilpha bore Gad and Asher. Leah then became pregnant again and bore two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun, and Jacob's only daughter, Dinah. Then the Bible says God remembered Rachel, and she gave birth to Joseph. Eventually, Rachel would die after giving birth to Joseph's younger son, Benjamin. This completed the twelve sons of Israel, but they were born to different mothers, so they had divided loyalties. Some were half-siblings, while others were full-siblings. We don't have details about the sexual incident with Dinah. She's given no voice in the story, so we don't know if she was assaulted, deceived, or coerced into sex. Her humiliation may have been because of trickery. It was completely unacceptable in those times for a virgin to engage in any sexual activity outside of marriage. So after Dinah is taken by Shechem, Jacob does tell his sons what has occurred. Due to the times they lived in, the text reads as though the brothers were more concerned with the family's honor than Dinah's feelings or future. This may or may not have been true. We just don't have enough information about whether they love Dinah or just love their own honor. We don't get any information about Dinah, except we know she remains in Shechem's home during this time. The rest of the account revolves around the men. Shechem and his father Hamar approach Jacob and offer to pay any bride price. Shechem has decided after violating Dinah that he wants her as his wife. The brothers pretend to agree to the marriage if all the city's men observe their family's tradition of circumcision. Shechem and his father agree to these terms, and the city's men undergo circumcision. On the third day, when they are in the greatest pain recovering from the procedure, Dinah's full brothers Simeon and Levi kill all of the city's men by the sword. They rescue Dinah and then plunder the city of everything that has value, including the remaining women and children. This is a violent, vengeful episode in the life of Jacob's family. When Jacob is dying and offering his blessing to his children in Genesis 49, Reuben loses out on the rights of the firstborn for having slept with Bilhah, Jacob's concubine, and the mother of Jacob's two sons. Jacob then condemns Simeon and Levi for the act of violence and revenge against the Shechemites, and they forfeit firstborn status, which then passes to Judah. The line of Jesus, in fact, comes through Judah. Was it right for Dinah's brothers to avenge her? The Old Testament records centuries of Israel's history where there are battles and conflicts with nations and neighboring tribes. There are times in these battles when God directs the Israelites to destroy opposing nations, and when God works out battles so that two or three opposing tribes destroy one another. God usually directed this warfare against nations whose idol worship involved evil practices such as infant sacrifice or temple prostitution. Destroying them was a way of cleansing the land from these abhorrent practices. Simeon and Levi, however, destroyed the Shechemites not under command from their god, but out of personal pride and vengeance. They may have loved their sister Dinah, but their emphasis was on the misuse of our sister. Daughters in that time were family commodities. Marriages were arranged and bride prices enriched a family's finances and honor. The situation with Dinah was not a fair arrangement for Dinah or her family. 
Shechem took advantage of Dinah and tried to take advantage of Jacob's family. Shechem initiated the dishonorable actions, but it should have ended with him. The violence perpetrated against the Shechemites by the son of Israel, especially with the trickery involving circumcision, was wrong. Jacob condemns it and prophesies that it will cause them trouble in the land. Jacob makes his disapproval clear in his final blessings of his sons. He disapproves of their love for violence. Revenge and deceit are not the ways of the God of Israel. Simeon and Levi are condemned for this and forfeit any possibility of attaining firstborn status when Reuben loses his place in the line of succession. The Bible is straightforward that revenge belongs to God alone. In Romans 12, verse 19, it reads, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It is an act of trust and faith to yield vengeance for a wrong to God, who knows how to repay with justice and fairness. So what did happen to Dinah afterwards? The Bible is silent about what happened to her. We know from Genesis chapter 46, verse 15, that she was with the family when they went to Egypt during the Great Famine. Joseph had written to second in power in Egypt under Pharaoh and was able to rescue his family from starvation. Because Dinah would not be eligible for marriage following the incident with Shechem, it was most likely that one of the brothers' homes took her in or she helped care for her father for the rest of her life. No children are attributed to her, and no more is said about her. Jesus' treatment of women was revolutionary in the gospel. In the Old Testament, God commanded many protections for women. This incident with Dinah does not reflect God's desire for women but the dangers and risks for women living in a sinful and fallen world. If we learn anything from Dinah's story, it's that God condemns revenge. Also, we can see that while the Old Testament peoples had to engage in necessary battles for survival, God didn't approve of murder for personal satisfaction. When this is taught, that should be the story's focus and its importance for understanding the line of Judah. The biblical writer likely chose to include this tragic story, not to teach a lesson, but to make it clear why Judah, fourth in the birth order, obtained Jacob's firstborn blessing. Judah would be the son through whom the line of Jesus came. Okay, so did you catch that, OOBTers? Dinah's story seems to be in scripture, at least in part, to show why Simeon and Levi, and even Reuben, did not receive the firstborn blessings and were not in the lineage of Jesus. The reasoning for why this blessing passed to the fourth son, Judah. Put a pin in that, as I promise we'll come back to Judah in the coming chapters. Before we continue on, though, I want to share these tender words found at the end of the section about Dinah and this terrible tragedy in Beth Moore's Patriarch's study. Dear one, God can rebuild shattered lives. Satan will do everything he can to tempt you not to trust God because he knows your willingness to place yourself in God's holy hands will lead to full redemption. What is full redemption? Redemption is when the pain is treated and turned around so thoroughly that it not only loses its power to do you harm, but also gains the power to do some good. Of this I'm certain. After treating me with the sound counsel of his word and putting me back together again, God uses my background of childhood abuse every single day of ministry to someone else's good, even if the subject never arises. I have known suffering, and it gives me a depth of compassion and understanding that I would have never had otherwise possessed. When all was said and done, Satan got caught in the very snare he set for me. Don't stop working with God until Satan's evil plan for your life or your family, backfires in his ugly face. Oh, friends, I pray that these words provide us some hope and encouragement at the end of a very difficult chapter in Genesis in the Bible. Moving on, Genesis chapter 35 from the New Living Translation reads, Then God said to Jacob, 
Get ready and move to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Jacob told everyone in his household, Get rid of all your pagan idols, purify yourselves, and put on clean clothing. We are now going to Bethel, where I will build an altar to the God who answered my prayers when I was in distress. He has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all their pagan idols and earrings, and he buried them under the great tree near Shechem. As they set out, a terror from God spread over the people in all the towns of that area. So no one attacked Jacob's family. Eventually, Jacob and his household arrived to Luz, also called Bethel in Canaan. Jacob built an altar there and named the place El Bethel, which means God of Bethel, because God had appeared to him there when he was fleeing from his brother Esau. Soon after this, Rebekah's old nurse, Deborah, died. She was buried beneath the oak tree in the valley below Bethel. Ever since, the tree has been called Alan Bathuth, which means Oak of Weeping. Now that Jacob had returned from Padam Aran, God appeared to him again at Bethel. God blessed him, saying, Your name is Jacob, but you will not be called Jacob any longer. From now on, your name will be Israel. So God renamed him Israel. Then God said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. You will become a great nation, even many nations. Kings will be among your descendants. And I will give you the land I once gave to Abraham and Isaac. Yes, I will give it to you and your descendants after you. Then God went up from the place where he had spoken to Jacob. Jacob set up a stone pillar to mark the place where God had spoken to him. Then he poured wine over it as an offering to God and anointed the pillar with olive oil. And Jacob named the place Bethel, which means house of God, because God had spoken to him there. Leaving Bethel, Jacob and his clan moved on toward Ephrath, but Rachel went into labor while they were still some distance away. Her labor pains were intense. After a very hard delivery, the midwife finally exclaimed, Don't be afraid, you have another son. Rachel was about to die, but with her last breath, she named the baby Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. The baby's father, however, called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. So Jacob set up a stone monument over Rachel's grave, and it can be seen there to this day. Then Jacob traveled on and camped beyond Megdal Eder. While he was living there, Reuben had intercourse with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Jacob soon heard about it. These are the names of the twelve sons of Jacob. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpha, Leah's servant, were Gad and Asher. These are the names of the sons who were born to Jacob at Padan Aram. So Jacob returned to his father Isaac at Mamre, which is near Kiriath Arba, now called Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had both lived as foreigners. Isaac lived for a hundred and eighty years. Then he breathed his last and died at a ripe old age, joining his ancestors in death. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. Okay, friends, I'm just going to come right out and say it. Did you also notice how despite the absolute disaster we found in Genesis 34, God does not give up on Jacob? Here in chapter 35, we actually see him reaffirm his call and promise to Jacob. God leans in instead of pulls away. Amazing grace. Simply amazing, right? Here are a few thoughts along these lines from the Knowing the Bible Genesis study. God's steadfast love and faithfulness. God's character, and especially his persevering steadfast love, is continually shown to Jacob. He recognizes, as it reads in Genesis 32, verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love 
and all the faithfulness you have shown to your servant. God's mercy, not Jacob's merit, is the basis of God's blessing. Even when Jacob waits too long at Shechem and reverts to the old Jacob, God renews his call to him to go to Bethel and reaffirms his promise to him, as found in Genesis chapter 35, verse 1 and 9 through 12. God's steadfast love is not fickle or easily offended. It reflects who he is. God's protection. When God commanded Jacob to return to the land of his fathers, he promised him, in Genesis chapter 31, verse 3, I will be with you. As Jacob goes on his way, the angels of God meet him and he declares, This is God's camp. Genesis chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. Jacob recognizes God's gracious provision and protection. When Jacob is terrified of the Canaanites and Perizzites after the slaughter in the city of Shechem, God sends forth a terror from God upon the cities that surround him as he moves forward in obedience. As Jacob moves forward in God's purposes, he experiences God's powerful protection. God is the ever-present protector of his people. I am guessing we can all be humbled and encouraged not only by God's steadfast love and faithfulness, but also by God's protection as well. Amazing grace for sure. For Jacob. For all of us. Add to all of this the fact that God also formally reminds Jacob of his new name change to Israel. The first five Genesis study has this to say about Genesis chapter 35 verse 10 in a devotional titled, A New Name. It reads, In Genesis 35, Jacob begins a new chapter, just as his father Isaac's chapter is coming to a close. In the early verses of chapter 35, God commands Jacob to go to Bethel and build an altar to the Lord. Before going, however, Jacob rids his household of all foreign gods and purifies his family in preparation. After the incident with Dinah, Jacob is probably all the more passionate about modeling and leading his family in holy living. It is at Bethel where God formally initiates a new season in Jacob's life. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. You may recall that Jacob had his name changed in Genesis chapter 32. Here is what we might consider a formal name change in ceremony. God confirms that Jacob now has a new name, a new identity, and a new purpose. Jacob's new name served as an ever-present reminder that he would lead his family into the future of God's promise. But Jacob's new name was evidence not just of a future promise, but also of a present reality. Something had changed. God had made Abraham and Isaac's promises to Jacob personally, and now those promises weren't just to a small family, but to a growing tribe. It's also in this passage that we learn of the death of Rachel, Jacob's wife, during the birth of her second son, Benjamin. With the birth of Benjamin, we now have a full picture of Jacob's line, the sons who would later become the twelve tribes of Israel. Israel will lead the family forward towards God's promised land. His new name is his new identity. What lies in Jacob's past wasn't nearly as important as what is promised in Israel's future. It's true for you, too. When we allow God to define our identity— What happened in our past isn't nearly as important as what's promised in our future. So far, we've basically seen over the course of Jacob's story in Genesis a slow turning from overall doing things his way to instead one of him seeking God. Of course, we've seen some hiccups along the way, some bumps in the road, just like on our own journeys. Actually, that's exactly what makes him so real and relatable, in my opinion. I just can't get over the immense impact it must have had when God changed his name from Jacob a deceiver and a cheater, to Israel, one God fights for. There's really so much foreshadowing right here as we move forward in our studies. We will see how God fights for the nation of Israel over and over and over again. And we must also remember, friends, that he also fights for us over 
and over and over again. Let's all just sit in that truth for a moment, shall we? So touching to consider. In the same way, we once again see the importance of names in the death of Rachel during childbirth. Her name for this son was Son of My Sorrow, but in those heartbreaking moments, Jacob instead renamed their son Benjamin, meaning Son of My Right Hand. Listen to this perspective found in Beth Moore's patriarch study about what is happening here in the birth of Benjamin. She says, Genesis 35:17 tells us Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. Those words sent shiver up the spines of anyone who has ever given birth. Under the healthiest of circumstances in modern care, childbirth can be difficult. Add great to the difficulty and our hats go over our hearts in respect. As vocal as I am otherwise, I wasn't one to make a peep during labor and delivery, but Keith claims the bone in his forearm is still bruised, and I thought the hee-hee breathing he kept doing was for my sake. Jacob and Rachel never got the chance to laugh, though, over the retrospective view of labor and delivery. Their son was born gulping the air of tragedy. His first cries were quickly drowned by wails of others. The midwife's words in verse 17 may at first seem strange when she says, Don't be afraid. You have another son. In all likelihood, the same woman attended Rachel when Joseph was born. And the midwife then may have heard Rachel say, right after she named her first baby Joseph, May the Lord add yet another son to my family. The midwife was perhaps scrambling to encourage a dying mother, wanting Rachel to know that her prayer had been answered. But the most compelling part of our narrative is the name change of Jacob and Rachel's son. Rachel named the child Ben-Omi, or son of my sorrow, and Jacob named the child Benjamin, son of my right hand. Interestingly, this is the only child Jacob himself named. Therefore, let's not take his insistence to change lightly. Obviously, both names have one syllable in common, Ben. This Hebrew word Ben means son. Benoni means son of my trouble or son of my sorrow, and Benjamin, on the other hand, means son of my right hand. Can you think of any reason why Jacob might have insisted on the change? I just think that maybe the sorrow of losing a mother was enough without having the child have to live with such a name. How I'd love to hear your thoughts, though. I imagine right now you and I are thinking something similar. Who in the world knew the power of a name more vividly than Jacob? He was named Jacob because he grabbed his brother's heel, but the name also implied meanings like cheater, deceiver. And he lived up to that in broader implications. So how often do you think Jacob felt mocked by his name? Surely a self-fulfilling, dark power of his name motivated the following dialogue as Jacob wrestled with the divine in the Jabbok. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man answered him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Genesis chapter 32, verses 26 through 28. Overcome what, I ask you? Well, his own name, for starters. He'd learned to fight fair, and God in his mercy released him from the noose of his own name. And in the pain and delirium of her dying state, Rachel named her second son after the trouble and sorrow surrounding his birth. Wisely, a man who knew the power of being retitled trumped a name that could have saddled his son with guilt and sadness. In its place, Jacob gave a name of honor. You are not to be a son of sorrow, little one. In sorrow you were born, but in sorrow you shall not live. You are my youngest, my baby, the one I will have beside me in my oldest days. You, my child, are the son of my right hand. Contrary to popular opinion, the dead cannot haunt us, but the living certainly can. 
Rachel did not know the breadth of the repercussions her dying wish to name her baby Benoni could have. Jacob did, and he would not have his son haunted by them. How touching that in the midst of his grief at losing his wife that he so loved, Jacob was also able to recall just how important a name is in someone's life, and thus give Benjamin a name he would not be haunted by for the rest of his life. Gracious. Okay, friends, just to clarify, we just read of the deaths of Rachel and Isaac in quick succession. Before we move on, did you pick up on the mention that Esau and Jacob buried their father Isaac together? Just another reminder of the beauty of them reuniting in forgiveness and love for one another after walking through a very rocky past, as discussed in the last couple episodes of OOBT. Before we move on, let's not miss what is tucked in this chapter in verse 22. It read, While he was living there, Reuben had intercourse with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Jacob soon heard about it. That one brief sentence actually makes reference to what could only be described as a whole lot more family chaos and tension. Beth Moore has this to say in the Patriarch Study. Let's comment briefly on the odd scandal within this segment. We might wonder what possessed Reuben to sleep with Bilhah. Obviously, he surrendered to evil and disturbing desires, but they may not have been entirely physical. Consider one commentator's notes. Whatever his actual motives, Reuben's deed represents a powerful challenge to Jacob's authority. He simultaneously exacts revenge for the humiliation of his mother, prevents Rachel's concubine from again usurping his mother's place as Jacob's primary wife, lays premature claim to his inheritance, and most important, directly challenges his father for leadership by assertion of great sexual prowess and preeminence over his wives. Reuben's incestuous act is, in its inner meaning, an act of patricide, the removal of the father as a father. Don't automatically discount a motivation of physical attraction, however. Reuben was Jacob's oldest son by Leah, and Bella was Rachel's young maidservant when she entered the narrative. The difference in their ages may not have been as broad enough to discount mutual desire, however sinful. Yikes. This basically brings us full circle, to, so to speak, to confirm that Reuben, Simeon, and Levi are all given mention in these chapters to indicate their sin, which shows why Judah was ultimately the one blessed as part of the lineage of Jesus. And spoiler alert here, we'll soon see how Judah has his own sins to deal with, but as we have discussed before, God only has sinners to use, am I right? Okay, so in the interest of time and general mispronunciation, (laughs) I'm going to have all of us read or listen to chapter 36, featuring the descendants of Esau. As I have pretty much preached before, but I'm going to do once again, listen to this article from the Got Questions website titled, What is the Relevance of Genealogies in the Bible? It reads, the Bible contains multiple genealogical records. Many of us either skim these sections or skip them altogether, finding them largely irrelevant and perhaps even boring. However, they are part of Scripture, and since all of Scripture is God-breathed, they must bear some significance. There must be something we can learn from these lists. First, the genealogies help substantiate the Bible's historical accuracy. These lists confirm the physical existence of characters in the Bible. By knowing family histories, we understand that the Bible is far from a mere story or a parable for how we should live our lives. It is authentic, historical truth. An actual man named Adam had actual descendants, and therefore his actual sin had actual consequences. The genealogies also confirm prophecy. The Messiah was prophesied to come from the line of David in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. By recording his lineage in Scripture, God confirms that Jesus was descended from David. The genealogy is yet more proof of Jesus Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. 
The lists also demonstrate the detail-oriented nature of God and his interest in individuals. God did not see Israel vaguely as a nebulous group of people. He saw them specifically with precision and detail. There is nothing detached about the genealogies. They show a God involved. The inspired word mentions people by name, real people with real histories and real futures. God cares about each person and details of his or her life. Finally, we can learn from various people listed in the genealogies. Some of the lists contain narrative portions that give us glimpses into the lives of the people. For instance, the prayer of Jabez is found within a genealogy in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. From this, we learn about God's character and the nature of prayer. Other genealogies reveal that Ruth and Rahab are in the Messianic line. We see that God values the lives of these individuals, even though they were Gentiles and not part of his covenant people. While genealogies may at first glance appear irrelevant, they hold a special importance in Scripture. Genealogies boost the history found in Scripture, confirm prophecy, and provide insight into the character of God and the lives of his people. Now, in light of these reminders, how about we all press pause to go listen to the list of names of Esau's descendants? I'll wait. I promise. (laughs) Welcome back, OBTers. Thanks for pausing to review those names with me. To further help us as we consider just why God decided to include this lineage, First Five's Genesis study offers this perspective in a promise-kept devotional. Today, we read more than 30 verses cataloging Esau's descendants, the rulers of a place called Seir. It's easy to wonder why on earth God included these kinds of mundane details amongst the most important words ever communicated to mankind. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 tells us all scripture is useful for us. It teaches or trains us. This must include genealogies. However, often to find the value of one passage, we have to look at how this passage would have been received by those for whom it was written and how it connects with the rest of scripture. Genesis 36 outlines in detail God's great grace towards the impulsive, rebellious Esau. Over the course of his life, Esau made willful, selfish, and hasty decisions that showed a disregard for God's wisdom and God's ways. While Jacob deceitfully stole his blessing, don't miss the fact that Esau gladly traded his birthright, asking in Genesis chapter 25, verse 32, what good is a birthright to me? He was also rebellious in choosing a wife from among the pagan Canaanites rather than from his own people. Earlier, God had made Esau a promise, inheritance, and a blessing in the land of Seir. This passage proves God kept his word. Esau had been habitually unfaithful. God is consistently faithful, and that faithfulness would extend for years to come. Many generations later, God tells Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 2-5, through 5, that the Israelites must not engage the Edomites, or Esau's descendants, in war they would not be one of the nations Israel would overthrow as part of the promised land inheritance. Moses is writing Genesis and Deuteronomy for Israel. So when God's command was given not to provoke Seir, they would have remembered God's promise to Esau. Yes, this genealogy tells us something so sweet about our God. Amidst what might seem like irrelevant, monotonous detail, we see God's unwavering faithfulness, not to us, but to his word. Like Esau, even when we are unfaithful, He is faithful. His faithfulness isn't based on us. It's rooted in Him, His character, His word, His unchanging nature, and His goodness always advances His will and elevates His glory. Did you hear that last part, my friends? Let me read it once more to be sure we all not only heard it, but felt the weight of those truths. Like Esau, even when we were unfaithful, 
He is faithful. His faithfulness isn't based on us. It's rooted in Him, His character, His word, His unchanging nature, and His goodness always advances His will and elevates His glory. Oh my, the only thing I can think to say in response to this is thank you, Father God. And yet somehow, that does not seem anywhere near enough. Beautiful. Just beautiful. As we enter into our time of prayer together, let's be reminded of Jacob's return to Bethel, to the place he had previously met with God. And now him doing so can be a valuable reminder to each of us to also take time in our own lives to remember God's faithfulness in gratitude and worship. The importance of returning to the places we previously met with God, where we saw his faithfulness, the importance of remembering. Let's join one another in prayer. Heavenly Father, just as we read in today's episode, like Jacob and his family, many of us are walking through a hard time right now, but we know you are faithful. We just can't see it now. Please help us. As you did with Jacob at Bethel, take us back to the last time you were faithful, the last time you heard the cry of our hearts and met us in our pain. Help us to trust you again, even here when and where it's so hard. You are amazingly faithful. Sometimes we forget that your goodness to us is not the result of our works. Similarly, we often forget that we can't forfeit your promises to us just because of our failures. As you were so tender and kind to remind Jacob, help us remember that you are so good and you act according to your will and pleasure. We also confess that it is often so easy to only remember what's defined us in the past hurt, hopeless, broken, and alone. As you gave Jacob a new identity, a new name, Israel, would you whisper to each of us a reminder that in Christ, we are redeemed, chosen, healed, and loved. Help us to live a new story, one that shows how truthful and faithful you are to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Okay, my Bible study friends, next up, Joseph. And my oh my, what a story his is. So very many plot twists. Not to be a spoiler of all that is to come or anything, but I thought it might be helpful to have a bit of a character and story overview in mind as we prepare for the storyline that will take us through to the end of the book of Genesis. Listen now as I read an excerpt from Angie Smith's woven book. The story goes south. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now his 12 strapping sons. Taken together, these men are what's known in scriptures as the patriarchs, the founding fathers of Israel. But chief among the twelve sons is undoubtedly Joseph, whose part of the story fills out the remaining chapters of Genesis. We know he was his father's unapologetic favorite, as did everyone else, including his brothers. In fairness, though, Joseph didn't exactly try too hard to play it down. He made a point of reminding him about his special elevated status at every opportunity, like when his dad gave him that stylish robe of many colors, as found in Genesis chapter 37, verse 3, to signify his unparalleled importance and Joseph strutted around wearing it. Or when he reported to them on the details of dreams that came to him in his sleep, where his brothers played the role of bowing down to his superiority. Needless to say, they got really tired of him, threw him down a well, sold him into slavery, and slaughtered a goat so they could smear blood all over his jacket to prove to their father that he was dead. So who exactly did they sell him to? A band of Ishmaelite traders. Jacob was devastated. He'd lost his favorite wife, and his favorite son. He slipped into a period of mourning of which no one could comfort him. Having no idea, the story wasn't what it would appear to be. Joseph's captors took him south to Egypt and sold him as a slave. 
His owner, a guy named Potiphar, came to like and depend on him. Then Potiphar's wife falsely accused him of raping her, and he was thrown into prison for a crime he didn't do. While there, he stayed for a really, really, really long time. But while there, he interpreted dreams for two guys. Eventually, his reputation reached the pharaoh, and after he interpreted a dream for him, he was made second in command over all of Egypt. Can you say plot twist? The dreams that Joseph interpreted for the Egyptian pharaoh warned about an upcoming famine. There would be seven years where crops would be plentiful, followed by seven years of drought. So now was the time to gather up stuff and get ready for the day when they would need it. But if the strategy seems brilliant on Joseph's part, God is the one whose brilliance should actually amaze us, because as many as three generations earlier, God had given Abraham a bit of insight he couldn't possibly have understood. He told him his offspring would end up being relocated to a foreign land, would become treated like slaves, and would be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. We'll come back to this prophecy later, but it's a good time to start unpacking it now. Because while the impending famine seemed to be breaking news to Joseph and the Egyptians, God had been writing and reporting on this story for years. Do you see that the famine was his chosen tool for getting Abraham's offspring transported to Egypt? Where they would settle and prosper because Joseph would provide for them. I've been in plenty of famines, quote-unquote, and I can look back now and see the way God provided. In the moment, not so much. And though it eventually led, sadly, to many years of hard slavery for the Israelites, God had a spectacular plan in place. Here's where it starts. Genesis chapter 42, verses 1 and 2. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? Go down and buy grain for us, that we may live and not die. Off they go, or ten of them anyway. Jacob chose to hold back his youngest son, Benjamin, fearing something might happen to him. He didn't want to lose Rachel's other son the way he'd lost the first one. The ten who went, however, found themselves face to face with the person in charge of selling grain, two down-and-out travelers coming to Egypt in search of help. They didn't notice the family resemblance, but Joseph did. What are the chances of your brothers throwing you in a well and selling you into slavery only to be standing in front of you asking for help? I mean, this is some good stuff right here. I would not have been as kind as Joseph. First, Joseph accused them of being spies, played hardball, bled them for information, and they sang like scared canaries. Then he put them all together in jail for three days because, why not? Said they weren't going anywhere until they got their little brother there and finally decided to hold one of them hostage and send the rest home. And what's more, he put their money back in their bags to make it look like they'd stolen it. They returned to their father, explaining that they'd been found guilty of theft, and the only way they could be found innocent was to return with their youngest brother, Benjamin, their father's favorite living son. They would starve if they didn't do what the man had asked. They had no choice but to return, all of them. When they got back to Egypt, Joseph arranged for them to be brought to his house, which scared them to death. He asked them if their father was alive, and they told him that he was. Joseph locked eyes with Benjamin and was so overcome with emotion that he had to leave the room to compose himself. He also left the room because, are you ready for this? It was considered an abomination for Egyptians to eat with Jews. But he set them up for a nice dinner and told his staff to seat them around the table by birth order. Joseph, however, knew exactly what he was doing. He was determined to see his dad, and there was only one way to get him there. Keep Benjamin as collateral. This was not going to go well. I mean, losing both of their father's faves was less than ideal. Judah piped up and begged Joseph to keep him there instead. Wow, Judah was willing to sacrifice himself in place of another. 
Not only that, but let's quickly recall who these kiddos actually were. He was Leah's spiritual breakthrough child who was now offering to sacrifice himself for Benjamin, the only other son, other than Joseph, born to Rachel and Jacob. Tensions between these two sides of the family had been mounting for years, and now we see one of them offering himself for his enemy, the underdog, giving himself up for the beloved. Sounds like another man who would come from the tribe of Judah. That's all Joseph could take. Knowing his father was alive, knowing his youngest brother was standing right there next to him, he couldn't swallow his emotions anymore, and his voice echoed throughout the home that, under more normal circumstances, would have never been his home. I am Joseph, he said. And with those words, disbelief silenced the brothers. Fear overwhelmed them. Shock tangled their thoughts as they tried to comprehend what was happening. This man in power, the one who held their fate in his hands, was their flesh and blood. The one they were so jealous of, the one they'd send away as a slave, now had them at his mercy. But it wouldn't end the way we might expect because Joseph wasn't after revenge. He loved them too much to repay them with hatred. Like so many others in the insane story of his family, God had changed him. Genesis 45.8 says, It was not you who sent me here, but God, he said. Or as he would put it later, after Jacob had come to join them, after all of them were together again as a family, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. It is why an aged Jacob, unlike his father Isaac had done, could call all twelve of his sons together without favoritism and speak blessing over each one of them. The old deceiver had finally given up his confidence in con games, believing he could simply trust God's word concerning his family's future. As Jacob neared the end of his life, he asked to be taken to Canaan to be buried, to be placed in the same cave as Isaac, Rebekah, Abraham, and Sarah. But that was just a glimpse of what God was really doing. Yes, Jacob's request would be honored, and years later, Joseph's bones would be brought home as well, out of Egypt and back to Canaan. The Lord, he said, would someday bring this entire covenant nation up out of Egypt and would plant them again in the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, and to the thousands upon thousands who would make up their family tree. Because God's people aren't made for Egypt, they're made to live in the land of promise. So, my OOBTers, I hope this excerpt we heard from the Woven Book provides some framework for us especially given the fact that we'll be camped out in Joseph's story for the next 14 chapters of Genesis. Plus, yes, that means we are getting so close to finishing up the book of Genesis. We've almost made it. Together. How exciting. Okay, as we are officially near the end of today's episode, can I just be 100% honest with you for a moment? Friends, reviews matter. They absolutely do. They create interest and give credibility so new listeners don't have to take my word about how much I love hosting the OOBT podcast, but instead have other listeners that they already know, love, and trust vouching for the podcast. Truthfully, you taking five minutes to drop five stars and a quick review wherever you are listening today will make so much more impact than you may ever know. And for that, I thank you in advance, my friends. You're the absolute best. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.